Shalom, welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, anytime. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end when we're also going to share an exciting opportunity for you. And please feel free to share this with others who you know will also find it of interest. So today, it's actually the first time in a couple of weeks that I am back recording from the Judean mountains. The last couple of weeks, I've been recording in Jerusalem in the uh, shadows and the wake of the uh, Christian Media Summit. Today, we're back here in, in the Judean mountains, but I'm speaking to somebody in and about Jerusalem. And I'm really excited to have this conversation. It's timely on a whole host of levels, although the truth of the matter is we could discuss this every week for ad infinitum because there is that much uh, to discuss. Um, Zev Orenstein is our guest today. Zev is the Director of International Affairs for the City of David Foundation, where he's responsible for strengthening awareness of and support for the City of David in Jerusalem, the place where Jerusalem began and the historic site of biblical Jerusalem, among those shaping public policy and opinion. To that end, Zev works closely with government officials, faith leaders, NGOs, and members of the media. Zev moved to Israel in 2003 and lives with his family in Ma'aleh Dumim, which is just to the east of Jerusalem. Zev, it is amazing to have you join us today. When we bumped into each other a few weeks ago, I really meant it. It's been my intention to have this kind of a conversation with you. Um, You're a very busy person to pin down. So I'm really glad we can carve out this time and uh, talk a little bit about uh, what's new in ancient Jerusalem. Uh, It's it's oftentimes uh, what's new is what's old. Uh, Because for for something to be interesting uh, in the city of David, which is the place where Jerusalem began, uh, unless uh, you could put a couple of thousands uh, behind it, uh, it's not going to make headlines. And thankfully... Uh, in the city of David, we uh, we've been making a lot of headlines lately. Thank You're God, making a lot of headlines. I want before we talk about the city of David. I always enjoy to have guests talk about themselves. You made you made Aliyah in two thousand and three, year before I did. You came with 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 the family, I think. But what what was your background, and 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 where did you grow up, and what drove you to want to come and live in Israel? So I grew up in the OK state of New Jersey. Uh, I don't know if it's a great state, but it's okay. And well, uh, I grew up there too, so uh, we can we can we can commiserate, right? And that, and we're both not living there anymore, so uh, we've, <laughs> we've we've upgraded. Uh, in any case, I grew up in New Jersey, and I went to Jewish day school. I grew up in what you would call today like a modern Orthodox type community, and uh, went to Jewish day school. And growing up, Israel was never that big of a thing where I went to school. I remember growing up, we would go uh, every year in New York, you'd have the uh, Salute to Israel parade. So we'd go uh, to the parade down Fifth Avenue. Um, 
I remember in elementary school, they would serve us falafel on Israel Independence Day. Uh, that was pretty much my understanding through uh, elementary school. I went to a high school where uh, it was very not into the modern state of Israel. Uh, didn't really talk about it, didn't teach about it. It was just not something acknowledged pretty much. But uh, after high school, it was traditional amongst my peers to go for what's called a gap year uh, and spend a year studying in Israel. In, in my case, studying in what's called a, a yeshiva uh, or an institution of, uh, of Jewish learning. And during that year in Israel, uh, it, for me, it was my second time in Israel, the first time I went uh, as a kid. But during this, this year in Israel, I remember we had a, a weekend, a Shabbat in the old city. And I remember one of the teachers, his name is Rabbi Mori Rubel. He gets up and he's talking about his experiences growing up uh, during the Six Day War in 1967. Wow. Now, now I'm in this room with 70, 80 of my peers. And he gets up and starts talking about how leading up to the Six Day War in 1967, you have the leaders of the Arab world saying openly in English, in Arabic, in virtually any language they could speak, we are going to destroy Israel. We're going to kill all the Jews. The streets of Tel Aviv are going to run red with Jewish blood. Uh, in Israel, they were already preparing the parks uh, to become uh, mass uh, mass graves. I mean, right. the, the number the number of casualties they were expecting were going to be uh, in you know very very high thousands. And uh, even in America, they were. Uh, the Jewish community of America was asking the people in Israel to send the children of Israel to America so that this way, keep in mind, you're about 20, 25 years after the Holocaust, and it's about to be round two. And so at least there'll be a surviving remnant that the children of Israel will survive after Israel is uh, destroyed. And there was a joke in Israel at the time, which was the last people to, to leave uh, the country shut off the lights at the airport. Uh, it was supposed to be game over. And then he goes on to say how not only was Israel not destroyed, but in six days, Israel almost quadruples in size and returns to uh, pretty much every place of significance. I mean, aside, you have the Sinai, uh, Sinai Desert, Sinai Peninsula, but then you have uh, Jerusalem, you have the city of David, the Temple Mount, the Western Wall, the Old City, the Mount of Olives, you have uh, Bethel and Shiloh and Shechem and Hebron and, and, uh, and Gaza and the Golan Heights and uh, just Every, every place that is biblically, biblically significant, Israel returns to uh, in the Six-Day War. Uh, and it was nothing short of, of miraculous. And as he's sharing this story, I'm sitting there, and I'm getting more and more bothered. And I'm thinking to myself, my parents spent a lot of money, money they did not have, to send me to get a good Jewish education. And how could it be that my own people's history, the ingathering of the exiles, the return to the land of Israel, the revival of Hebrew as an everyday language, uh, the miraculous military victories, making the desert bloom. No one taught me that stuff. I mean, they taught me about the Holocaust and they taught me about anti-Semitism and other things. They taught me about FDR and the New Deal and the French Revolution and the Roman Renaissance. But my own history and like the good, exciting parts uh, of my history, no one taught me. And I felt cheated. Wow. And so, so I went over to this teacher afterwards and I said, I want to know more. Uh, you know, how could I learn more about what you're talking about? So this was, I don't know, 1997, 1998, before Amazon. And he says, well, you can read a book, O Jerusalem, which yeah. is a historical fiction account of Israel's War of Independence. And so I somehow tracked down this book in a used bookstore in Jerusalem. And I take off the next three days from classes just to sit in my room and read this book. And after reading this book, it was the first time in my life that I felt, wait a second, 
there really is a God. Now, you'll say to me, well, Zev, you just said that you grew up in a modern Orthodox community. And you're going to, you know, Jewish day school. You're keeping ship, uh, the Sabbath, eating kosher. Like, what does that mean that, you know, it's the first time you believe in God? So if you would have asked me, you know, up until then, well, you know, what, why do you do what you do? Why do you keep the Sabbath? Why do you eat kosher? I would give you two answers. I'd say one, you know, I happen to have been born into uh, Orthodox Jewish community. So I do Orthodox Jewish people things. Had I been born in, in the Southern US, I'd probably be a good Christian. And if I'd be born in Saudi Arabia, I would have been a good Muslim. Happens to be, I was born into an Orthodox Jewish family. So that's what I was. Uh, but it wasn't really by choice. It wasn't like I ever really thought about it or made a conscious decision. Why am I doing these things? And then if you would have pushed me, I would have said, well, look, you know, thousands of years ago, God did all these things for, for, for my people, took us out of Egypt, gave us the Torah, the revelation at Sinai, all those things. And out of gratitude for what God did for our ancestors, we do these things today. Do I believe there's a God in the world today? I would have told you that. Like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Was just wasn't really something I ever thought about. I read this book. I said, wait a second. People don't come back after 2000 years of exile to their homeland. Uh, you know, a people that's just a few years out of the Holocaust is not now defeating armies of multiple nations that are trying to destroy it. Right. Uh, you know, people who, you know, did not have a ton of agricultural expertise all of a sudden making the desert bloom and the ingathering and the exiles, these things don't just happen. Uh, and, and the flip side, the world's obsession with a tiny little country in the Middle East uh, that the United Nations and everyone else seems to be so obsessed with it, it's also just not normal. I think there's something bigger going on here. It's something bigger, something biblical, something divine. And I said, you know, I want to be a part of that story. And I went after my gap year, I went to New York. I uh, went to Yeshiva University, which also was very influential in, in my journey. Uh, and uh, by the time I graduated, I got married right afterwards. Seven months later, uh, my wife and I were moving to Israel and made Aliyah. And since then, uh, our three children were all born in Jerusalem, which Amazing. is probably the biggest gift I feel like I will ever give my children, is that they'll be able to say that they're Jerusalemites. I don't yeah. know when in my family's history uh, someone else started off in Jerusalem. And one thing that I, I remember, my last, uh, last year in university, it was uh, an event I helped put together for Israel's Memorial Day and Israel's Independence Day. One leads into the other. And I was, I was saying the evening prayers that night, and we have a teaching in our faith that says the reward for doing a good deed is another good deed, and, and you know, the reward for doing a, a sin is another sin. And it, and it didn't make sense to me, because imagine you're in university, and you work really hard in the term paper, and you now deserve an A. And the professor says, you know, you deserve an A, but I'm not going to give you an A. I'm going to let you write another term paper. You're like, uh, no, thanks. <laughs> like, you know, I'll, I'll take the A and, you know, we'll Thank leave it you at very that. Much. <laughs> so what, is, what does it mean that God says to us, the reward for doing a good deed is another good deed? Well, like, just give me a reward. Like, I don't know, give me some blessing. Give me something. Like, don't say the reward is now I have to do another good deed. And I remember that that night, as I was saying the evening prayers uh, at this event that I'd helped put together, this, this huge, very successful event, thank God. I remember saying in the prayers that I was asking God, I said, look, I'm, I'm going to finish university now. I don't want to be an accountant. I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to be a lawyer. And it's no mm -hmm. disrespect to any of your listeners who do all those very important things. None of those things spoke to me. I didn't feel that was my call. I said, I want to devote myself 
to connecting people to Israel. And I asked God, I said, let me be your messenger to do that and allow me to be able to support my family honorably. I don't need to be rich. I said, I don't need a big house. I don't need fancy cars or vacations. I said, but just let me do this for you. And as I was saying though, that, that prayer, it struck me. I said, wait a second. For me, what was I saying? That re- reward for me for getting to do what I do is getting to do what I do. Yes. Uh, my reward is getting to share the significance of, of Jerusalem yes. with people all over the world. Uh, and, and that is an incredible reward. And, and it's something I strive to be worthy of uh, every day. Uh, but, but for me, that's the biggest blessing that, that uh, this is what I get to do. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. That's important background. Gives, uh, gives us all a deeper insight into what we're about to talk about. But I also love when you're talking about your kids being born here. Only one of our children was born here. We imported five. Um, but the best part, and just wait for it, is when your children start having children here um, sure. in Jerusalem. And and I, my youngest is named for two relatives who were killed in the Holocaust, both of whom were Orthodox Jews who knew to pray, were praying for Jerusalem. And I have to imagine if they had graves, they would be dancing in their graves, knowing that they're, that that a now a 17-year-old who's named for them was born in the place that they could pray, only pray and dream about. So it is a blessing. And and then it, we're going to we're going to put that on steroids talking about what you're doing uh, at, at City of David. But before we do specifically, this is a significant week um, because in Jerusalem, for Jerusalem, we just observed a, a minor fast day on the 10th of the biblical month of Tevet. Um, and that's connected to Jerusalem. And I wanted to put that you've given me some personal history. Can you give let, rewind and why why is that significant now as kind of a foundation for this conversation that we're about to have? So almost every one of the biblical festivals uh, is connected to Jerusalem in in uh, in some way, uh, whether it's the pilgrimage festivals or the minor festivals. And the the tenth day of the month of Tevet is a day that commemorates the the Babylonian siege around Jerusalem. Now, when we talk about Jerusalem, it's important to understand that when we speak of the Jerusalem of the Bible, when we talk about the Jerusalem of King David, of King Solomon, of King Hezekiah, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, we are not talking about the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, King David never walked through the Jewish quarter of the old city. Uh, King David, King Solomon, uh, they never put notes between the stones of the Western Wall. Uh, The Western Wall that that we know today is a thousand years after David and Solomon. The place where the kings of the Bible ruled and the prophets of the Bible preached was not the old city. It was the city of David, which is located directly south of the Western Wall of the Temple Mount, just outside the walls of the old city. The walls of the old city that are iconic are only 500 years old. Uh, The the Western Wall, the Temple Mount, the Southern Steps, those are 2000 years old, uh, which go back to the time of Jesus. David is 3,000 years ago. Right. Uh, so it's important to understand when we speak of Jerusalem, we're speaking of the city of David, which is not the old city, outside the old city. So this, this day, uh, this minor fast that was, was just commemorated, when we speak of the siege around Jerusalem, we're talking about the Babylonians where they would surround the city of David uh, together with the Temple Mount. And there's an amazing thing. One of the things you find in the city of David uh, for those who have visited and those who, who one day, God willing, will visit, yes. we, we find an ancient toilet. 
A toilet yep. that is about 2,500 years old. One of the oldest toilets in the world. Now, scientists are a funny, a funny breed. And when this toilet was discovered a number of decades ago, they came along and they said, you know what? What was it that the last people to use this toilet, what were they eating? And what do they do? They lift up the stone, they scrape around, they take whatever they find, and they bring it to the lab. And in the lab, they uh, do the analysis. And it turns out that the last people to use this toilet in the city of David, the place where Jerusalem began, they were eating raw meat and weeds, and they were suffering from tapeworm. Now, I don't know what your listeners, uh, their background, what they like to eat. We're not talking about beef carpaccio, right? No. That's not the raw meat we're talking about here. Not even barbecue. Right, no, raw meat and weeds. Now, the question is, why would anyone choose to eat raw meat? And the answer is very simple. This toilet dates back to the last days of Jerusalem, before the Babylonian destruction, before the Babylonians will not only conquer Jerusalem, but destroy the Temple of Solomon. The Bible describes, towards the end of 2 Kings, that what is happening in Jerusalem, how are the Babylonians conquering the city? They'll eventually burn it down. But before they burn it down, they besiege the city. The people inside the city are literally starving to death. Nothing's getting in. Nothing's getting out. At some point, they ran out of wood. They could not make fire. They could not cook their food. And so the last people who use this toilet, they're eating raw meat, eating weeds, whatever's just growing. That They're starving to death. And so even an ancient toilet in the city of David shows that when you're in the place where the Bible happened, the words of the Bible come to life. It's real. You can see it. You can touch it. There's another excavation in the city of David in what's called the Givati parking lot excavation, where a structure dating back also some 2,500 years to the end of uh, the first temple period in Jerusalem, right before the Babylonian conquest, we find in this structure ash. Ash dating to the Babylonian fires that destroyed Jerusalem two and a half thousand years ago. This is not a nice story of saying, well, maybe it could be. We'll just no. like this is 100 percent ash from the fires. When it says in, in uh, towards the end of Second Kings, it talks about how how uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he burned down every great home that was in Jerusalem. This was one of the great homes that was burned down, a massive home destroyed and the ash is still there. You could see it. You could touch it. It's not simply a matter of faith, but a matter of fact. We're literally every single day in the city of David. We unearth antiquities, fancy word for old stuff, that shows <laughs> that our biblical heritage, whether you're Jewish or Christian, our shared biblical heritage in Jerusalem is true, is real. What's the range? I, 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 what's the range in terms of the dates when you're unearthing things? There was a point that the city of David was destroyed, and only in modern times was it was it re-excavated and explored, and is still being explored. Well, what's the what's the uh, period of time that we're talking about? I mean, Jerusalem goes back four thousand years or so, right? You're talking about when you talk of uh, uh, uh and the story when he meets with Abraham. Uh, it takes takes place. He's called the King of Salem. What's the King of Salem? That's Jerusalem, yeah. right? And so already the Bible's making reference to, to Jerusalem already in the time of Abraham. And we know it becomes a Canaanite city uh, around that time as well. And many of the discoveries in the city of David go back before David, goes back to the Canaanite period. Uh, we have the whole Canaanite uh, water system that's been uncovered. And then you have you know the time of David, the first temple period, going through the Babylonian destruction. 
uh, that 400 plus year period. Uh, and then you have the whole second temple period, uh, which culminates, you know, begins in the time of, uh, say, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, and the return to Zion period where Nehemiah comes and rebuilds the walls around Jerusalem in 52 days. The remnants of those walls, which have been discovered in the city of David, uh, culminating with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in the year 70, uh, around the time period of, of Jesus. And so we have all of that. And then we have post uh, destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. You have uh, you have the Roman period, you have uh, the Byzantine period, and then you have uh, the Persian period, and, and so on and so forth, Crusader, until eventually you get to modern times. Now, the yeah. way archaeology works, you know, all over the world, uh, some periods are more interesting than others. Uh, if you find something 100 years ago uh, in Jerusalem, nobody cares. Right. And so you have to be in a certain sweet spot of you know what is the time period that is the most significant time period in that place now in jerusalem it's not as simple as other places if you're in rome pretty much we know if it's 2000 years ago we're interested if it's more than 2000 years ago not so much which means if you're an etruscan nobody cares about you uh they're the pre-romans uh when you come to jerusalem uh here's where politics get involved and also faith because if you ask a muslim what is the most important time period in jerusalem in terms of when you're going to dig and, and you're going to say, we're going to dig to this point and stop and not go below it. Well, Muslims will say 7th seventh century, about uh, 1300 years ago. That is the most important time period, more than anything that came before it. And therefore, once you hit that time period and you get to an Islamic layer, just stop yeah. because you're yeah. not going to find anything more important. You could ask a Christian and say, hey, when's the most important time period in Jerusalem's history? And they could say, Jesus, right? Once you hit 2000 years ago in the time of Jesus, well, that, that's as good as it's going to get. We don't need anything else. You could ask Jews and, and other Christians who will say, well, the Hebrew Bible, right? That's that's the most important. And therefore, you got to go past 2000 years. Jesus is about 400 years after the close of the Hebrew Bible, which means if you want the Hebrew Bible, you got to dig down deeper. Right. And so when it comes to the city of David, the question is, where do you dig? Where do you stop? What are you trying to uncover? Uh, and therefore, when you visit the city of David today, you will see remnants from all these different periods of history reflecting uh, all the different layers uh, that make up the story of Jerusalem. Which, which, as you said correctly, it makes up the story. It's the whole. It's the whole picture. It's not. It's not. Um... Uh, the the phrases it's not edited it's not it's not limited but you're exploring it all and there are lots of places when I went on a tour th- uh, with the wonderful wonderful guide Shira uh, recently um, one of the emphasis was what the the only time the the exploration stops is when you're hitting bedrock because until yeah. that point there's there's always the possibility of something. That's being right. above it. I want to talk about the beginning of the exploration and then what's going on now, but let's take a quick break and then come right back and do that. When you think of Jerusalem, you probably think of its historic and biblical sites. Run for Zion is a trip unlike any other. You will join tens of thousands of Israelis interacting with Jerusalem as you never have and never imagined you would. You'll connect with and bless Israelis of all backgrounds. If you've never been to Israel and are dying to come visit or haven't been for a while and can't wait to get back, Run for Zion is the opportunity for you. And now, if you register today, you can join us for as little as $29. Yes, that's for real, just $29. Run for Zion is a pilgrimage and service experience that gets you out of the tour bus, interacting with the people and the land. Check out runforzion.com for details 
and come, run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. Okay, so Zeb, we were just talking about the multi-layers and the thousands of years of history. Remind me, I, I, I know it, but some listeners won't. When did we begin exploring the city of David? So the amazing thing is, up until 150 years ago, when people think, where is the original biblical city of Jerusalem? There is one answer, and that is the old city of Jerusalem. Until the year 1867. 1867, Queen Victoria of England wants to discover the treasures of the Bible, like the Ark of the Covenant. So she sends a man by the name of Captain Charles Warren to the Holy Land. Now, if you want to find the treasures of the Bible, what city will you go to? You'll go to Jerusalem. If you're going to search one place in Jerusalem to find the treasures of the Bible, you'll go to Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, uh, the spot where the Bible speaks of uh, the binding of Isaac taking place, the spot where King David's son Solomon will build a temple, which is why Mount Moriah becomes known as Temple Mount. Uh, and Charles Warren says that's the spot to search for the treasures of the Bible. Now, today on the Temple Mount, you have two Islamic shrines. You have the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the number three holy site for Islam, and then you have the Golden Dome of the Rock. Now, according to biblical tradition, the rock that's being referred to is the foundation stone, the center of all creation. Charles Warren says, if you want to find the treasures of the Bible, this is the place to search, Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. Except 1867, the Ottomans, the Muslims are here in the area, and they say, Charles, we're sure you're a great guy, but you're not <laughs> going to dig up the Temple Mount. So to this day, due to religious sensitivities, political sensitivities, there's been virtually no archaeological activity on the Temple Mount. And so Charles Warren has a problem. He can't go back to the queen empty-handed. So he says, if I can't dig on the Temple Mount, I'll do the next best thing, which is to dig near it. He comes down the slopes of Mount Moriah, of the Temple Mount, and he's walking through the Kidron Valley, just east of, the, east of uh, the City of David. It sits directly between the Temple Mount, the City of David, and the Mount of Olives, runs right between it. He's walking through this valley, and he comes across an ancient spring, the Gihon Spring mentioned in the Bible. And he sees that this spring is flowing through an ancient man-made tunnel. Now, he doesn't realize it, but he begins to walk through a tunnel engineered some 2,700 years ago by the biblical King Hezekiah, direct descendant of King David, that was engineered to protect Jerusalem from the Assyrian siege of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And so now Charles Warren's walking through this tunnel. It's totally dark. He's carrying a torch. The flame of his torch begins to flicker wildly. He looks above his head. He sees there's a shaft going up into the mountain. He's curious. Where does the shaft lead? He climbs up the shaft and he finds himself amidst a network of underground tunnels and fortifications with antiquities dating back thousands of years. And he comes up with a theory. He says, everyone believes that the original biblical city of Jerusalem, the city of David, is located inside the walls of the old city. But Charles Warren says, I believe everyone's wrong. I believe that the original biblical city of Jerusalem, the city of David, the place where Jerusalem began, is not located inside the walls of the old city, but outside the walls of the old city. Why? What does Charles Warren seemingly know that no one else knows? He says, well, the city has to be where the water is, yeah. right? The water is down outside the old city, down in the Kijon Valley, where the city of David is today. That's where the city must have been. He announces his theory to the world and scholar and layman alike say, Charles, that is the most ridiculous thing we've ever heard. Why? Because if you look at what the city of David would have looked like in the time of Charles Warren, you're largely talking about a barren 11 acre ridge. And they say, Charles, you're telling us this barren 11-acre ridge, this is a Jerusalem that has significance, not to millions, but to billions of people around the world. There's nothing here. It has to be the old city. Right. Charles Warren says, I'm telling you, this is the spot. And over the next 150 years, the city of David will become one of the most archaeologically excavated sites in the world. 
the most excavated site in Israel. And today everyone knows Charles Warren was in fact correct that the original biblical city of Jerusalem, the city of David, the place where Jerusalem began is not found inside the walls of the old city, but outside the walls of the old city. What's so fascinating about that, Zev, I mean, on many levels, is that had the Ottomans given him permission to excavate on the Temple Mount, so he would have found great stuff. And eventually someone would have found the city of David, but it's because of the Islamic refusal then that we now have the evidence that we do that that undermines today's Islam saying, no, there's no Jewish history in Jerusalem. That's right. And I'll tell you two other things on that point. One is, it's ironic when you look at the old city walls and here, this isn't a sound like a silly question, but what do the old city walls of Jerusalem what are they surrounding? The they surround the Jer- Jerusalem, right? Yeah. The old city walls of Jer- surround Jerusalem. But here's the amazing thing. When the Ottomans, when the Muslims build those walls 500 years ago, what they're saying is from their perspective, everything that's important in Jerusalem is located where? Inside the walls. Because right. they built the walls around Jerusalem. What do they leave out of those walls? City the of city David. of David, biblical Jerusalem. It's right. as if from their perspective, they were acknowledging there's nothing outside the walls that's important to us. Now, obviously, today they say something different, but uh, we we actually have a copy of a book uh, that the Supreme Muslim Council put out. This was in the 1920s, 1930s. They were putting out versions of this book, and it was called A Brief Guide to the Al-Haram al-Sharif. That's what yeah. uh, Muslims refer to as the Temple Mount. Now, why is in 1930 the Supreme Muslim Council putting out in English a guidebook about the Temple Mount? Because in 1930, the British are here. Now, what did they want the British to know about the Temple Mount in 1930? Here's a quote from the book. It says says that uh, the site where Solomon built the temple is beyond dispute. This too is a spot, according to universal belief, on which King David built an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, that's a quote. A quote from where? It's a quote from the Bible, the book of Samuel. So you have, in 1930, the Supreme Muslim Council saying, there is a temple atop the Temple Mount. There's a David. There's a Solomon. Beyond dispute, universal belief, and they quote the Bible. Now, today, obviously, they say something very different. But it's just amazing how, over the course of a century, the, how, how radically the position has shifted to today outright denial of Jerusalem's biblical heritage yes. uh, by Islamic leadership, Palestinian leadership, UN leadership. Uh, but what was less than a century ago, everyone knew it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I want to offer any reader, uh, any any listener who's who's uh, interested. I have a copy, a PDF that I'm happy to share with anybody of that document from the 30s. And then by the time they rewrote that already in the 50s, Israel was already born. They con- conveniently erased the references to uh, to the, the temple and Solomon because that was no longer politically correct narrative. Uh, fascinating stuff. Amazing. And you can see that almost like layers archaeologically that you that right. lay back over over just a couple of decades in in our in the modern life what let's talk about what's new just in the news uh last week there was something that was new a new excavation i i think it's dynamite you want to share with everybody what's going on so in order to talk about what happened last week we have to go back a little bit further okay 2004 at the southern end of the city of david there's a road Beneath the road, there is a sewage pipe. And in 2004, that sewage pipe explodes. So now there's a big mess. The municipality of Jerusalem 
has to send in construction crews to repair the sewage pipe. But Jerusalem is not just another municipality. And the city of David, the place where Jerusalem began, is not just another part of Jerusalem. And here, when a sewage pipe bursts, you don't only send in construction crews, you also send in archaeologists. And so the archaeologists are supervising. You have the bulldozers and dump trucks doing their work, repairing the sewage pipe. And the archaeologists begin to hear scraping, scratching. It doesn't sound right. They clear everyone out. And it turns out that in repairing the sewage pipe, they had uncovered a series of ancient stone steps dating back some 2,000 years. Again, 2,000 years ago, we're talking about uh, end of Second Temple period Jerusalem, first, first century CE, around the time of Jesus. And the archaeologists said there's only one other set of steps in Jerusalem that look just like those, and those are the southern steps, with deep significance for Jews and Christians alike. And so they said, well, what's the connection? The southern steps are the steps that would have gone up into the temple 2,000 years ago. And so they said, well, what are the, the steps uh, down over here, about a half mile apart? And they realized they had found the steps leading down to the Pool of Siloam. Now, what is the Pool of Siloam? The Pool of Siloam, uh, for your Christian li listeners, uh, has deep significance uh, for Christians. Uh, Reference in the Christian scriptures, the book of John, as a site of, of something very significant over there. And it's the spot where the Bible tells us three times a year, all of Israel would have to go on pilgrimage up to the temple on the Temple Mount. Right. We're talking about the three pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. Now, the historian Josephus said what? That there would have been nearly 2.7 million people, nearly 3 million people going on pilgrimage, say, on Passover 2,000 years ago. That's a lot of people. That's a now, ton what of do you, people. A ton of people, right? Now, what do you need to do before you can go up to the temple? You have to cleanse, wash, bathe, go to a mikvah, a ritual bath. The historian Josephus said he had nearly 3 million people. The pool is the size of almost two Olympic-sized swimming pools, about an acre and a half in size. And so what we had up until this past week, we were able to excavate only a tiny sliver of the Pool of Siloam because the rest of it was under different ownership. And recently that was, uh, was uh, let's just say, we were able to acquire uh, the rest of the pool. Uh, and finally now we're going to be able to undertake excavating the say remaining 90 plus percent of the Pool of Siloam. Uh, the actual biblical Pool of Siloam, uh, whether you're Jewish or Christian, this is one of the most significant uh, heritage sites in Jerusalem. Yeah. Literally a place where when you're in the place where the Bible happened, the words of the Bible come to life, like this is it. It is the Pool of Siloam. Uh, and we already know we found right next to the Pool of Siloam, the road, the pilgrimage road that our ancestors would have walked on. Again, whether you're Jewish or Christian, 2000 years ago, your ancestors would have walked on this road that would have led from the Pool of Siloam all the way up to the footsteps of the Western Wall, the Southern Steps, the Temple Mount. And both the road and now the pool are going to, going to be excavated as we speak. And in a few years' time, when you visit Jerusalem, when all your listeners come and visit Jerusalem, they're going to come and start their visit in the city of David. They're going to start their visit by the Pool of Siloam. And they're, then they're going to walk all the way up the half-mile journey along the pilgrimage road, coming out at the footsteps of the Western Wall, the Southern Steps, the Temple Mount, literally walking along what I call the biblical superhighway. And I believe there is no half mile that has more significance to more people anywhere in the world than the half mile running through the city of David, beginning at the Pool of Siloam, through the pilgrimage road, coming out at the Temple Mount. This is the most hallowed, the most sanctified half mile anywhere in the world. And 
as of this past week, we are going to be, be, able, be able to excavate the remainder of the pool. We're going to excavate the pilgrimage road. And your listeners very, very soon are going to be able to literally walk in the footsteps of the Bible. In the footsteps of the Bible. And for Christians, it's one of the few indisputable places in all of Israel that you can actually go back and and a lot of people market come walk in the land where Jesus walked that's a nice marketing uh slogan but in truth there are really only a handful of places that you can actually point to and that's one of them has to be no question right. about it and uh, again, if, you, if you said Jesus was Jewish uh then 2000 years ago he was he was you know, going up to the temple along the pilgrimage road and uh, cleansing himself with the other Jews. And so, you know, I've asked many, many priests and pastors, you know, the Via Della Rosa, the Stations of the Cross. Do you believe those are the literal, actual stations? And I have 100% of the time received the same answer, which is no. We believe somewhere in the vicinity, in the general area, it's where it happened. But, but no one could say with any certainty that they believe it happened exactly here. And I said, look, I said, I appreciate that. There are many places in the Hebrew Bible where we can't say exactly where something happened. We have traditions and so on, but we don't always know where. But when you talk about the city of David, when you talk about the Pool of Siloam, when you talk about the pilgrimage road, this is as close to 100% as you are ever going to get. Yeah. I mean, this is it. This is not simply a matter of faith, but a matter of fact. Yeah, you, you, you're, you I'm sure, familiar with uh, Neil Armstrong's experience here when he was asked to bring be, be brought to a place where he, where Jesus walked, and I think they took him to the Southern Steps because right. uh, the, the, because the city of David had not, or certainly the Pilgrims Road had not yet been excavated uh, at that point, and he he commented as the first person to step on the moon that it was more significant to be there than it was to be the first person on the moon. Uh, now, right. now everyone's going to have that access. And by the way, and I want to, to thank you again, setting up that tour for me a few weeks ago um, with Shira. Unbelievable. Um, the, the Pilgrim's Road is not yet open to everybody, is it? There is a small section uh, right next to the Pool of Siloam that is open where you can literally see uh, the shops lining the Pilgrim's yeah. Road right next to the pool. So you imagine that someone cleanses themselves in the pool. And, you know, it's, it's very easy. I find this with when I when I'm at the site, whether with with Jews, with Christians. And it's very easy for someone to somehow imagine that 2000 years ago, you know, it was a different world. The people were were like angels. They're holy that somehow Bible times are just different from the times we live in today. And and I show people there was a real pool of Siloam with real water in it. And then when you left the pool, you would go up a real road up to a real temple and there was real shops along this road. Why? Because some things haven't changed that, that you put millions of people converging on one place, you're going to have business, you're going to have commerce. And so you have the shops, the stalls where, where people were getting their temple offering, maybe getting a silver half shekel coin for the temple tax, maybe getting a hat or a water bottle or a souvenir or a tchotchke to take <laughs> home to who, who didn't go on pilgrimage, but yeah. it's a real Jerusalem. It's not, it's not just stories. It's not just, you know, that you read what's happening in the Bible, like you imagine, I don't know, like people who are different than us. No, it's real people like you and me, flesh and blood. The reason why the Bible is both so timeless and so timely is because we haven't changed all that much in the last two, 3000 years. Nice. And the lessons nice. of the Bible are no less relevant today than they were thousands of years ago. And, and the whole idea of the Bible is to learn the lessons and maybe not make the same mistakes that our ancestors did thousands of years ago. And for those who got it right, to take inspiration from them and, and to have them as our role models. But they were 
whether you're Jewish or Christian, the people that we look up to, uh, the stories that give us inspiration, they happened in a very real place. In this case, a very real city of David, a very real Pool of Siloam, a very real pilgrimage road. They're real places where these real events with real people uh, were transpiring. And it's, it's amazing to go there and open up the Bible and, and take inspiration uh, for how we're living our lives today. Well, I, I, I can't underscore your words enough. I hadn't been there in a couple of years and going back. I mean, I'm just thinking about it. And I don't know how you go to work every day and not just have a heart attack because of the excitement of what you do. My heart's racing just thinking about being able to walk through there and, and understand that. And that's on that's on an individual basis as a, as an Orthodox Israeli Jew with the privilege of living here and raising a family. But it's also so significant on a national basis, because one of the things I think we talked about uh, when I was on the tour is that until all of this, there really wasn't archaeological evidence. There was a book. We talked about King David, but we didn't have real archaeological evidence. That, and, and, and now that's that's indisputable. So anyone who's challenging it is just a liar. And and we need to and it's not just unveiling the history that you're doing and providing that opportunity but it's it's not that the bible needs affirmation but but the bible needs affirmation and you and know, there are people yeah as i say to that point it i don't think it's a coincidence that over the last couple of decades say from you know early 2000s 2005 or so when when the late dr elat mazar uh announced that she believed that she had discovered King David's palace, that over the last two decades, the the number of incredible, incontrovertible archaeological discoveries that are showing that Jerusalem's biblical heritage is not simply a matter of faith, but a matter of fact, whether it's ancient seals with names of figures straight from the Bible, like King Hezekiah, Prophet Isaiah, whether it's ancient inscriptions affirming biblical events, whether it's the pilgrimage road or the Pool of Siloam, I don't think it's a coincidence that they're being discovered now. Why? Because if you go back a hundred years ago, much of what we'd call the Western world today, they believed in the Bible. They were, you know, so to speak, God-fearing nations, uh, mostly Christian nations. And therefore, you didn't really need uh, affirmation of of your faith. It it just, everyone were were believers. People went to church or synagogue. Uh, That's just what people did. Today, fast forward a hundred years later, and we're living in a time you could hardly go to a university campus almost anywhere, certainly in the Western world, without at least uh, a whole department focused on biblical criticism, uh, where if you're a believer in, in many parts of society today, you're mocked, you're scorned, where the culture uh, denigrates uh, traditional biblical values. And it's amazing that on the one hand, at the time where there is so much denial of the biblical heritage, and uh, from a faith perspective, and obviously from a political perspective as well, uh, denying Jerusalem's biblical heritage, we're also living in a time where there's unprecedented discovery, as if what God is saying is, okay, yes, we're living in a time of unprecedented denial, but there's also unprecedented unprecedented discovery, and like it says in Deuteronomy, I'm placing before you today life and death, choose life, but God gives us the choice, he's saying, okay, you know, here it is, yes, there are the deniers, but there's the incredible discovery, and now each and every one of us has the opportunity to choose for ourselves what do we, what path do we want to go down? Amazing. Uh, it, yeah. Amazing. Let's take another quick break, and I want to come back and talk about so, the, the technical side of all of the excavations. Just one minute. 
I want to pause in the conversation for just a moment to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the Genesis 123 Foundation. This year, we have been going out all throughout the Judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism. It doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill, they are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers. You can join us and donate at genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. That's genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. And when you do, you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people. Please join us. Okay, so Zev, I, I, when you were st- speaking specifically about the, the opportunity now to begin to uncover the rest of the pool of Siloam and, and, and what that's going to mean and how in a couple of years, I want, you know, this is not a visual uh, media where we're talking and even still it's hard for people to to understand literally the depth of w- of what we're talking about which is why people need to come and visit now and five and ten years from now to see the the um the the progress and and everything but we're talking about meters and meters and meters of dirt and 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 other things that we found from the top all the way down. You can't just go in there with the tractor and start digging out the dirt. And it's 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 timely. What's involved sort of in the tech? It's not a big area. Well, it's a big enough area. But what's involved technically in, in doing this? And, and also, maybe you can help depict what that what the incredible uh, Pilgrim's Road looks like now covered, whereas it used to be open air. And now it's under a whole neighborhood. So to try and paint a picture, we today have a very small part of the Pool of Siloam uncovered. You have a series of ancient steps. You have the northern uh, perimeter and also a bit of the eastern perimeter of these steps going down into a pool. And what you see with those steps is it's leading to somewhere. I mean, there's more pool. There's no question that if we would just keep going, we see exactly where the pool is. Except that other 90%, if you imagine two Olympic-sized swimming pools together. Imagine that 90% of those two pools are covered with about 10 to 15 feet of, let's call it earth. And then you have a little portion of the pool that that's an empty pool. And you can clearly see, wait a minute, like the pool continues into that area that's covered by 15 feet of earth. And so now what's the challenge? As you said, we can't bring in a bulldozer and a dump truck. Why? Because as you're going to dig down through that 15 feet or so of earth, you're going to go through different archaeological layers and periods of history. Now, we may say from a historical perspective, certain layers are more significant than others. But that said, each layer has to be has to be given its scientific due, which means the archaeologists affiliated with the Israel Antiquities Authority, they're going to come in. And they're going to begin to once the area is cleared off from all the debris and stuff that's gathered over the years, they're going to start digging down. And they're going to say, okay, wow, we just found something from the Crusader period. Okay, well, we've got to document that, whatever. 
And now they go down a little bit deeper and they'll say, all right, well, now we found something to say from the Persian period or from the Byzantine period or from the, and also you can get to the Roman period, right? And the Roman period is pretty much what we're talking about. Uh, first temple, of uh, uh, first century CE, uh, 2000 years ago, time of Jesus. We're talking about end of, end of second temple period, Jerusalem. And that's already the time when you speak of the pool of Siloam that, that most people are familiar with. The part that's exposed today goes back 2000 years. But now here is a wild question that maybe some of your listeners are already thinking about if they know their Bible well, because we know that the Pool of Siloam that's been exposed today, the one that goes back 2,000 years, is not the original Pool of Siloam. We know already from the Bible in the Book of Book of Kings, it tells us 700, uh, 700 years earlier, you had King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah He's the one who actually engineers and constructs the original Pool of Siloam as part of his preparations to defend Jerusalem against the uh, impending Assyrian siege of King Sennacherib of Assyria. And so now the question is, are there remnants of the original Pool of Siloam going back to the time of King Hezekiah? Now, here's the challenge. Let's say we excavate and we find the entirety of the Pool of Siloam from 2,000 years ago, from the time of Jesus, let's say. Okay, well, now what? Do you then say, let's take apart some of that pool to see if we could find something going back seven centuries earlier to the time of King Hezekiah? Maybe some of your listeners are familiar with the uh, the game show Once Upon a Time called Let's Make a Deal, Yep. right? Where Monty Hall will say, all right, you won a refrigerator. Now you can go home with this refrigerator or you could see what's behind door number two. Now, maybe behind door number two is a brand new car. Right. Or maybe there's like a goat. Okay. <laughs> and, and if you go behind door number two, you lose the refrigerator no matter what. Now, either you're going to get a car or you're going to get a goat, but you're not getting the refrigerator anymore. So one of the questions that archaeologists are going to have to contend with as we excavate the pool is, where do you stop? Uh-huh. Where do you say this is significant enough that, you know what, we're not going to go deeper because we don't want to lose what we have over here. And that's a question that is uh, going to be above my pay grade, that the Israel Antiquities Authority, they're going to have to you know, figure out where where is it. And there could be some places where it'll turn out that, you know what, the ancient stones of the Pool of Siloam from 2000 years ago are no longer there, that at some point in history they were taken yeah, away. Sure. And those would be great locations to say, well, those stones aren't there anyway, so let's just keep let's going take. down deeper. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how they do that. In terms of the pilgrimage road, which leads literally right next to the Pool of Siloam, so today you have in the city of David, it is a modern neighborhood. It's a mixed Jewish-Arab neighborhood. Now, unlike the United States, let's say, where you'd have eminent domain, and they would come in and the government would say, look, everyone, here's some money. We're clearing you out. We're going to just dig up this whole neighborhood. Uh, That doesn't happen in Jerusalem for all sorts of reasons, political reasons, spiritual reasons. and, And therefore, what happens? We need to uncover the pilgrimage road while preserving the modern neighborhood above. So the pilgrimage road, while 2,000 years ago would have been under the sky, like the Pool of Siloam, today the pilgrimage road is largely underground because you have the modern neighborhood atop. And therefore, you have a lot of engineering that goes into supporting the modern road and shops and homes and cars uh, and buses and all that while uncovering the ancient pilgrimage road. And so you have a series of arches, essentially, uh, engineering supports that are preserving the modern neighborhood, allowing us to uncover the heritage from 2,000 years ago. And so when someone visits the city of David today, they could see the, the let's say, 10% or so of the uncovered portion 
of the Pool of Siloam. You'll see exactly where now the excavation is going to continue and even be able to actually watch the archeologists excavate the pool, which will be exciting. Uh, and then also see the very beginnings of, of the pilgrimage road and literally walk in the footsteps that our ancestors and the ancestors literally of anyone who's listening to this podcast, almost certainly their ancestors would have been in the pool and then walked up the pilgrimage road 2000 years ago. And so Amazing. it's something that's, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And the engineering of it all is significant. Um, I, I have to imagine that, that not knowing the cost of archaeological excavations or the cost of uh, preserving the, the, the integrity of what's above where the excavations are going, the, the, the engineering has to be no less expensive. I and mean, this is a, this is a very, very touchy thing. You can't have a mistake. Otherwise you have a whole neighborhood that could crumble. That's right. The, the engineering is actually not just not less expensive. The engineering is what makes it so expensive. Got it. Uh, most archaeological digs are top down. You'll start off in the modern layer, like we're going to do with the Pool of Siloam, and you just dig down to whatever level that the archaeologists decide they're going to stop at, maybe go down to bedrock. With the pilgrimage road specifically, because the homes, the modern neighborhood, is not they're not going anywhere, the excavation is therefore taking place horizontally where the archaeologists are going sideways and essentially have a time capsule of a period that we know dates back about 2,000 years uh, to the end of Second Temple period Jerusalem, first century CE. And they're digging in that time capsule in that specific layer. Uh, And the engineering, we're talking about when all is said and done, the excavation of the pilgrimage road will cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, The Israeli government partners with, uh, with some of that. And the rest of it is generous people around the world who want to be able to say that they have taken part in helping to uncover Jerusalem's yeah. biblical heritage. Yeah, amazing. Uh, it, but it's not it's not only not simple um, archaeologically or engineering, there's a, there's a political and uh, sure. diplomatic. Can you talk about the political and diplomatic challenges? Jerusalem is political in the sense that everything that happens in Jerusalem, you will not find a place in the world that has more people that feel like they have an opinion about what should or shouldn't be happening in this place more so than Jerusalem. Just for starters, you have Jews, Christians, and Muslims, which if you take all those people together, you're probably already well over half the population of the planet. Uh, Then you have religious people and you have secular people. You have right-wing people and you have left-wing people. Uh, You have Israelis and you have Jewish Israelis and you have Arab Israelis. You have Israelis and Palestinians. And so you have this little area when people speak of Jerusalem, when they think of the, the holy places, the holy basin, whether it's the city of David, the old city of the Temple Mount, the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, all these places only cover about a one square mile area. It's not very big. And if you want to see that God has a sense of humor, you look at mm-hmm. Jerusalem and you see that he put the Jews, the Christians and Muslims and many of the holy places literally right on top of each other. And he yep. says, he said to us, now play nice. Obviously, it's, uh, you know, a little bit, a little bit, uh, you know, easier said than done. And so the challenge here for much of the world, they view this part of Jerusalem. As a site that makes Jerusalem, Jerusalem for billions of people around the world is in East Jerusalem. You're talking about the Western Wall is East Jerusalem, the Church of Holy Sepulchre, the Mount of Olives, the City of David, the Pool of Siloam. That's all East Jerusalem. Now. The fact that the Palestinians say they want that as their capital, okay, great. Uh, I can tell you that no no nation would give up ever uh, their cradle of identity of civilization 
uh, to another another entity, and uh, you would you could look in Israel's parliament today, Israel's Knesset today, and there's a lot of division, a lot of contention, but one of the few things that that virtually wall-to-wall consensus, if you take the Jewish parties in Israel's Knesset, is the support for places like the city of David remaining a part of Israel forever. Yeah. Uh, virtually every soldier during their mandatory service will visit the city of David. Most school children will visit the city of David. Why? Because it's important to understand, and this is a, um, you know, something that I, I believe we in Israel are at fault for. Many people around the world believe that the reason why Israel exists as a as a law that when dignitaries visit Israel, there is one place in Israel that they must visit, and it's not the Western Wall, no, and it's not the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs, the Founding Fathers and Mothers in Hebron, and it's not the City of David. The one place every dignitary absolutely is required to visit is Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Memorial. Now that's a very important place to visit, and, and it talks of, about a very very important period of history and the lessons that are still no less relevant today than they were 70 years ago of the horrors of anti-Semitism and what can result from it. However, when that's the only place that these dignitaries are required to visit, the message that they're left with is the reason why Israel exists is in response to the Holocaust, is in response to anti-Semitism that the Jewish people, they weren't able to survive uh, being a minority in Europe or elsewhere. And so they need their own place. Now, there, there is some truth to, to that message, but that's not why we're here. And why are we here? And I'll share two, two anecdotes that are very personal to me about why are we here. There is a stone dating back some 2,000 years that you could see. It's, it's right next to the Temple Mount. And this stone, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in the year 70 and they, and they burned the temple, they throw many stones down, down into the area of where the Western Wall is today. And you can see those stones still piled up there in the area known as Robinson's Arch. And there's one stone in particular that actually has ancient writing on it. And I took my daughter, Hodaya, many years ago, and I asked her if she could read the writing on the stone. That's and she, cool. said, she said, Abba, Dad, yes, it says, to the trumpeter's house. Now, what does that mean, the trumpeter's house? The, the Josephus and also in the Mishnah, it talks about 2,000 years ago, that before the Sabbath, you would have had a priest or a Levite up on the Temple Mount blowing a trumpet, saying, the Sabbath is coming, close your shops, last minute purchases, go home and get ready to accept the Sabbath. Now, any of your listeners who maybe have spent uh, a Sabbath in Jerusalem, they're probably familiar having heard the, this siren that we even still do today uh, before the Sabbath begins. When my daughter read that inscription dating back some 2,000 years, I was very proud. Not only to thank God my daughter could read, but I was <laughs> proud that she was able to read the writing of her ancestors going back 2000 years. And I said to her, how many people can read the writing of their ancestors going back that far here in Jerusalem? I said something else, but before I tell you the other part, I have another daughter, Eliana. And one day we find in the Givati parking lot excavation, we find a seal going back 2,500 years. A seal would have that would have closed an ancient letter. Uh, and on this seal, was a name. And the name on the seal is Eliana, daughter of Gael. Wow. Now, what's special about this seal is you can count on one hand the number of women who we found a seal belonging to them going back 2,500 years. So we don't know. This Eliana, daughter of Gael, is not mentioned in the Bible, but we know she must have been someone important. Maybe a political figure, maybe someone connected to the royal family. 
We don't know, right? But what we know is she's important. And I came home after we made that discovery. And I said to my daughter, Eliana, I said, we found a seal with your name on it. And you have a lot in common with this Eliana. Not only do you share the same name, you're both Jewish. You're both from Jerusalem. You speak the same language, worship the same God, have the same customs, traditions, festivals as your ancestors from two and a half thousand years ago. How many people can say that? And so the reason why we, the Jewish people, are in Israel today, in Jerusalem today, the reason why it's the capital of the Jewish state of Israel is not because of the Holocaust and not because of anti-Semitism, but it's because this is where we have been for thousands of years. And every single day in the city of David, we're unearthing antiquities showing, not simply as a matter of faith, but as a matter of fact, that the Jewish connection to Jerusalem is real. The biblical heritage of Jerusalem that has significance to Jews and Christians alike is real. And we don't have to apologize for that. We don't have to apologize for being in the place where our where our ancestors have been. I, I gave a tour a number of years ago to a, a Muslim group. And at some point during the group, it was a group of religious Muslims. And it was a fascinating experience. And I remember one of the participants, a young woman who was studying at the University of Michigan. She was in a full Islamic dress. And she said to me, she says, OK, I get why I get that you have some history here. But why why did Jews have to live here in the city of David? Okay, you have history, come visit, whatever. But why do you need to live here? Just let the Arabs live here. And the first response I had, which I didn't say, but the first thing that came to my mind is, well, you know, Israel's a democracy and people can live wherever they want and whatever. But I didn't say that. I looked at her and I said, you look like a person of faith. You look like someone who takes your faith seriously. And she said, I do. And I said, I would imagine as someone who takes her faith seriously, as someone who believes in the teachings of the Quran, that it's probably important to you to want to be in the places where the significant events in, in, in the Quran and is, Islam's history, where those events took place, Mecca, Medina, even according to their faith, Jerusalem. And she says, 100%. I said, I can respect that. I said, but we're also an ancient people. And our faith happened here in Jerusalem. Yep. This is where King David, the kings, King Solomon, King Hezekiah, the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, this is where they were. This is where my people are from. This is where the most significant events in my people's history, in my people's faith, in my people's heritage, this is where it happened. And therefore, just like I can respect your feelings of connection to the places in your faith that are important to you, I would ask you to respect the connection that my people have to the places that are central to our faith. Respecting, just like I respect your faith, I ask that you respect mine. And she actually looked at me and she said, okay, I can understand why why it's important for you to live here. Now, does that mean that now she's a Zionist? No, I don't think she's a Zionist now. But do I think she appreciated why it's important that Jews are living in the city of David? Why it's yes. important for the Jewish people to live in Israel altogether? This is where we're from. This is this sure. is where our heritage is. This is the foundations, the bedrock of our identity. And that's what we're trying to do every single day in the city of David is bring that bedrock of, of that the biblical heritage to life. And we actually have, I don't know if you saw it when, when, when you started the tour with Shira, at the entrance to the city of David, there is actually now a plaque that was put in by the previous U.S. administration recognizing the city of David as an American heritage site, which is strange. You'd say, why would why would the American government recognize the city of David 6,000 miles away from the United States as an American heritage site? And the answer is very simple. The United States of America is built on the bedrock of the Judeo-Christian heritage. Correct. That heritage has its roots in Jerusalem, which is the city of David. And therefore, the heritage, the antiquities that are being unearthed every single day in the city of David, the place where Jerusalem began, are not just significant to Israel, to the Jewish people, 
but they have significance to billions of people around the world and to hundreds of millions of Americans that ultimately what unites our two great nations, the United States of America and Israel is not just shared values and democracy and high tech and some common enemies, but they're the two nations in the world today that were still established upon biblical principles on the Jerusalem's biblical heritage. Uh, and that's why I believe that the two most hated countries in the world are not North Korea or Russia or China or Iran, but Israel and America, because we're the two last nations that still believe in the heritage, the biblical heritage that has come forth from Jerusalem that has laid the foundations for both of our great nations. Beautiful. Very, very well said. And, and, and that, I mean, amazing. And I know I know everyone listening is taking away a lot. So if I want to take another really quick break and come back, wrap up with two, uh, I don't know if they'll be quick, but two um, summary questions and topics. If you're like most people in the world, you know about the Holocaust, but never met, much less interacted with a Holocaust survivor or heard their stories of suffering and survival. With the remaining elderly survivors dying at an unprecedented pace, in less than a generation, there will be none alive. Yet, while they did survive, and for that we need to celebrate them, many still suffer trauma from their youth. As they age, they have increasing needs, and living on fixed incomes, sometimes with no pension, things as simple and essential as basic foods, heating in the winter, medicine, and inflation can push someone over the line from surviving to struggling again. It can create stress in their lives that reminds them of the suffering they endured as young people. It's just not acceptable that anyone who suffered as much should struggle with basic needs or any undue stress in their twilight years. I want to invite you to join the Genesis 123 Foundation to bless the survivors. Yes, we pray that you'll donate personally and do so generously. And when you do, we also give you the opportunity to send your personal blessings and words of encouragement to the survivors themselves to brighten their day and let them feel your love. Having been privileged to provide financial resources to help survivors on a day-to-day -day basis, I know it makes a difference and is very appreciated. But your personal note that we translate into Hebrew, Russian, or Yiddish really makes them smile and warms their heart. I pray you'll join us by going to genesis123.co slash hug a survivor. That's genesis123.co slash hug a survivor. And please share this with others. We can't undo the suffering that they endured. And there's no limit to what the needs are, but we can never do too much to comfort them in their final years. Please join us. God bless you. So, okay, there's a lot to yet excavate. And I'm curious, do you sit around and think ever, like, what would be your dream? What's the wild dream that, that someone's going to find that's going to, that's going to go, aha, as if everything else hasn't already been that? Well, there are so many things that, that would be really exciting to find. I joke that, you know, maybe one day we'll find a sign saying, welcome to King David's palace. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and people ask, you know, maybe one day we'll find the Ark of the Covenant. And, you know, honestly, who knows? Uh, really, the sky is the limit. Uh, open the Bible and pretty much anything that, that the Bible mentions as it relates to Jerusalem, 
we could potentially find it in the city of David. We could find something connected to, to the temple in some way, maybe the inscription or, or seal of some significant biblical figure. We found some already. I'm sure we could find many others. Uh, really, it's, it's, it doesn't get old in the sense of just every day is, is a surprise of what, what are we going to find today? What, what new thing uh, that is going to affirm the Bible uh, is going to be discovered, but it's important, at least from my perspective, what I think is exciting about these discoveries is not proving the Bible. We don't need to prove the Bible, meaning either someone's going to choose to believe or they're not going to believe, uh, but but it's not the job of archaeologists or archaeology in general to, to say, well, now because we found this, that means now everyone has to believe in God or worship this way or do that. Uh, and also it, it takes away from the significance of, of the Bible in Jerusalem in the sense that somehow uh, Jerusalem's significance or the Bible's significance is waiting for some discovery to say, okay, maybe you're, maybe it's really important. Uh, but what, what is exciting is just the fact for me that there are places in Israel like Masada, the, the Herodian uh, desert fortress down by the Dead Sea, which had you been there 20 years ago and you go there today and you go there 20 years from now, it's largely been excavated. It's not changing. Correct. It doesn't make it any less incredible. It's amazing. Yep. And everyone, everyone listening right now, if you haven't been to Masada, go see it. At the same time, if you've been there already, you could go back, but it hasn't changed since your last visit. In the city of David, we've only excavated a third of the site to date, which means that there's still two thirds waiting to be unearthed, which, which means that in our lifetime, in our children's lifetime, in our grandchildren's lifetime, and probably even our great-grandchildren's lifetime, they will still be excavating the city of David. I think that is incredible. Why? Because it means that they'll be part of the story. Yeah. This is yeah. not just, well, you know, everything's already been discovered and, and we just now go visit. And But no, the chapters in the book of Jerusalem, in terms of what is happening and what is being unearthed and what's yet to come, that book is still being written. And, and you have your part in it. I have my part in it. Your listeners have their part in it. And so will the next generations to come. And I think that is... Uh, the most beautiful, special thing, because Jerusalem is really eternal, not just spiritually, but but in the sense that we should all feel like in some way we have a hand in in uncovering the significance of Jerusalem and, and, and bringing it to light in the world. You know, you, you talk about, uh, you know, the Genesis uh, 12:3, And what does it mean to, uh, you know, through you, uh, the nations of the world will be blessed. Excellent. Well, through you is, is yes, Abraham and, and his descendants. But in many ways, it's also through Jerusalem. Uh, that from Zion will go forth the law and the word of God from Jerusalem through this place, which is the city of David. We're meant to bring blessing into the world. Beautiful. And, and, and therefore, part of that, I believe, is uncovering the, the heritage of the Bible and showing people uh, its relevance, uh, spiritual relevance, but historical relevance and sometimes political relevance and all sorts of ways that it's still meaningful today. It's not just, all right, well, yeah, it's interesting once upon a time, but, but it's both timeless and timely. Yeah, always, always. Very, very well said. So last thing I want to ask you, you came into this as an Orthodox Jew with a good bit of uh, Jewish knowledge. The epiphany that you had here when you were studying in your gap year about this is that you wanted to be part of the narrative. And shortly after you got married, you came here, you planted your life here. And and now you're working at the city of David, arguably the most significant uh biblical site right that we're excavating now um or, or or ever what have you learned what's the one takeaway that zev ornstein has learned from all of this 
I can tell you before a takeaway, I can tell you uh, one thing I have learned, which is a lot more of the Bible. Uh, growing up, you know, most most Jews, I'll speak about myself, but I don't think I'm only speaking about myself. Most Jews are not well versed in the book of Jeremiah or some of these other uh you know, less, let's call it less popular, less central books uh, when you talk about the prophets and writings and, and so on. And I have gotten to learn, you know, whether it's Book of Jeremiah, Nehemiah, parts of the Bible that I grew up not really knowing much about. And so it's really special to, as we keep making these discoveries and excavations, to be in a position where it's like, wow, you know what? Time to go learn another book of the Bible and and, and just understand it from my own faith. Uh, it's It's been a, a tremendous gift. And, you know, one of the takeaways uh, that, that I have is I get to spend a lot of time with people involved in shaping policy, public opinion, that could, those could be members of Congress or Senate or administration officials, ambassadors, dignitaries, celebrities. And one of the things that I've found, which, which is, is humbling and, and inspiring at the same time, is Jerusalem speaks to everybody. Yeah. And it doesn't matter doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Christian or, or you're this level of importance or that. People have a connection to Jerusalem. And when I, I've been invited to speak in, in the White House or the State Department and these various places, and one of the things that, that struck me was I have nothing to feel sorry about. I, I because I'm representing Jerusalem, am no less significant than whoever I'm sitting across from. Whether it's the Vice President of the United States or someone else, that representing Jerusalem puts you on a standing equal with anyone. And I would say in, in many ways more significant because you know what? A few years from now, someone may not remember who the vice president of the United States was. <laughs> Everyone will still be talking about Jerusalem. And, and, that, and that is something that has given me a certain ability to, uh, I have, I have uh, in my personal email signature, a verse from Psalm uh, chapter uh, 119. Uh, which is, uh, uh, I will speak your testimony before kings and not be ashamed. Now, nice. what's interesting about that is I, I had that as my, my, so to speak, life verse 10 years before I found myself in the city of David. And it's as if somehow things just played out the way they did. And that's what I get to do now. But what enables me to stand before kings, uh, so to speak, and not be ashamed is to know that I represent Jerusalem and I have nothing to be ashamed of. Jerusalem, right. Jerusalem is, is bigger than all of us. And I get to play a very, very small part in that. And one other thing I'll share with you, uh, which is not directly, directly related to the city of David, but I think it's related to the work that you're doing and, and its importance. Uh, a few weeks ago, we were celebrating the festival of Hanukkah and we got to host in our home uh, a group uh, of young Christian adults uh, who, who joined us one night for lighting. And I've gotten through my work in the city of David. I, I grew up in the United States in a, in a Jewish community, I did not have a meaningful relationship with any Christian growing up ever. Uh, I, I, I knew like my non-Jewish neighbors, we'd nod, say good morning, whatever, but like I didn't have a relationship. And I, I went to Jewish day school and I went to a Jewish high school and I went to Yeshiva University in New York, no Christians there. And then I moved to Israel. And in a certain sense, there was a part of me that felt like, wow, I've made it now through my whole life without having any relationship with Christians. And now that I'm living in Israel, that's that's it. Like, I don't have to worry about that anymore. And all of a sudden I came to the, what I do in the city of David and, and the majority of people that I interact with are actually not Jewish, mostly uh, Christians. Yeah. And and 
in the beginning, it was, it was a very big adjustment for me growing up because of all the different things that we'd been raised to, to believe and be concerned about when it comes to Christians and, and their faith and, and maybe what they believe or what we think they believe. And what I said to this group that we had in our home over Hanukkah, I said, you know what's special? I said, 2,000 years ago, you had non-Jews who, who came to the land of Israel. And they came not in the spirit of, of friendship, not in the spirit of, of wanting to, to respect and connect. They came to conquer and to impose their values and, and their faith of what you would call back then uh, and to, to destroy. And I said to this group, I said, I said, look where we are today. So we can invite you into our home today because you want to connect to, to what's coming out of Jerusalem today, to the biblical heritage that is blossoming and flourishing like nowhere else in the world that's happening here in the land of Israel. And you're hungry for that. And so you come with a desire to learn, to know, to connect in a respectful spirit, in a humble yes. spirit. And I said, that is a fixing, and as we would say in Hebrew, a tikkun, a fixing uh, of what's happened, you know, for you know thousands of years ago and not even just thousands of years ago, but it's a beautiful thing that that's something that's possible today. And I think a lot of that is possible through the initiatives like the work that you do and podcasts like this that are trying to, uh, in a way that is honest and respectful without compromising, without apologizing, but to show that uh, as much as there are things that we may view differently, uh, there is also a lot of common ground. And uh, when we can respect each other and respect what we agree on, and also what we disagree on without trying yes. to impose anything, uh, a lot of blessing is possible. Amazing. Zev, that's beautiful. And going back to the very beginning, we're talking about your reward, you know, the reward for getting an A. It's very clear that you've been given that reward and, and you're so good at it. Thank you for, for sharing all of that. Where, where when people are booking their own trips or they want to connect and learn more, where, where can people go online to, to follow City of David? So you can go to cityofdavid.org.il and then you can do like a slash EN for the English site. Even without the slash, you'll, you'll figure out how to get to English on social media at City of David. We'll get you to all of our social media stuff. And if you go to YouTube and put in City of David for our channel there, City of David, Ancient Jerusalem, we have a lot of great uh, video content for people who want to connect with uh, and follow all the discoveries that are being made here. Amazing. Zeb, thank you. I, I look forward to getting all kinds of amazing feedback from this conversation and um, inspiring people to come and visit and come again and visit and, and, and see as the, the, the remaining two thirds of city of David is, uh, is excavated. Thank you for, for sharing and your time today. Really amazing. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, everyone who, who uh, has been following inspiration from Zion for the last year, you know, that every, at the end of every episode, we're offering a gift. I, I joke, a reward for staying with us this long. So a year ago, we started offering what I call a, a, a special volume from Jonathan's bookshelf. Thanks to the City of David, this month, we're offering a book that will connect you even further called Discovering the City of David. And all you need to do is follow inspiration from Zion on all of our social media and like us. And when you comment and share the link to this program, we are going to pick one person at random at the end of the month to receive a copy of this incredible book. And then I look forward to volume two, three, four, five, or however many, because there's going to be a lot more to discover. Always grateful that our podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're ever in the area, pop in and thank them for helping to make programs like this possible. And thanks also to the Coyne family for their meaningful sponsorship. 
Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges. This episode, I just decided impulsively, Zev, while we're speaking, is sponsored in honor of all of the children who were born in in Jerusalem, like your children and my son and our grandchildren who have part of the namesake, literally or figuratively, like your daughter, Eliana. And if anyone listening would like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one, someone's name, or a special occasion, please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments always as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, especially questions you have about traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Please share this with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you.